Let's pray together. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Lord, as we come and receive your word this morning, we ask your blessing on it. We are grateful that you have spoken your word to us, that you have given it to us in the Bible, and that through your Son we have access to the God of the universe, that we come as meager beggars with nothing in our hands to offer, and yet through faith in Christ we are filled and we are full of joy and we rejoice in this wonderful hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the salvation that your Son has purchased and we just pray your blessing now as we open your word, as we study the wonderful things that pertain to your Son, you would stir in our hearts this wonderful hope and confidence in the one through whom we have access to the throne of grace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as of this past Monday, it is officially election season in America again, so buckle up. Uh, all these candidates, right, uh, making their pitches to be our next commander-in-chief, although everyone knows you can't put too much stock in campaign promises, right? It's just, we see this every, you know, two to four years as promises are made and then, you know, sometimes they're kept, uh, instead, the prevailing wisdom, right, is the, the president's first 100 days in office are where they really get to, you know, make their mark. The first 100 days, the things they get to first can come to define their presidency. Well, today, we're looking at something infinitely more important than a political election. We're looking at the king of kings who has finally come to the capital city, to Jerusalem, and we're going to see what he does right away. You can think of it as his first 100 days. The first things he does when he gets there, he's going to show us who he is by what he does, and it could not be more shocking. Jesus is going to do two things in our passage this morning. The first thing he does is go to the center of Jewish religious life and start flipping tables. Fairly scandalous. And the second thing he does is bizarre on literally every level. He's going to go and yell at a plant. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, if there's any proof Christianity's not just some made-up religion, it's passages like this. Who would come up with this unless it happened, right? He's going to pronounce judgment on vegetation. That's a little bit weird. We can agree on that. But both of these two things are going to show us a glorious reality of who this Messiah is, what he has come to do. So if you were here last week, Jared walked us through the famous triumphal entry, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, entrance into the capital city of Judaism, this grand arrival where the crowds are cheering because they realize the son of David, their Messiah, their king, has finally come. And as Jared showed us last week, one thing we saw from that is that Jesus alone gets to define who he is. 
Jesus alone, he's the self-defining king. He's the one who tells us what kind of king we need and what kind of king he is. And he continues that theme today. We don't get to tell Jesus what we need him to be or what we demand from him. He comes and he shows us who he is. So we'll start in Matthew 21, verse 12. The first thing he does when he gets there, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. As I said, the first thing Jesus does here is fairly scandalous, and it's, it's scandalous on multiple levels. So obviously, first, this is just pretty scandalous on a normal social level. You go into a room and you start throwing the furniture, you might not get invited back. Right? This, this is a scandalous thing to do. If you're, you do it at your friend's house, it's poor manners. So it's scandalous on a normal social level. Flipping tables, kicking people out is scandalous on the level of authority. Think of it like this. If, if I walked into the boardroom of Apple and started pulling people out of their chairs and saying, you need to leave, I'm communicating something. I'm saying, I'm in charge here. This is my boardroom. You do what I tell you. So it's, it's scandalous on the level of authority because this is some upstart Jewish rabbi who just walks into the epicenter of Jewish religious life and starts telling people what to do. And then third, it's especially scandalous on a religious level. This is sacred space. Jesus walks into the temple. It's, it's one thing to flip tables at Starbucks and it's bad manners, but he walks into the temple and it, it is an entirely another level of scandalous. And to really understand how scandalous this is on a religious level, we need to get our arms around what the temple is, what, what its function was in the Jewish religion. We need to get some, some background. So last week, if you were here, Jared very helpfully showed us how the promises of the Old Testament are all filtered through a person. So there's promises of a king, of a serpent crusher, of a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, there's these promises filtered through a person. We can't understand the Old Testament if we don't realize that all of these are coalescing in a person. But there were also, we could also read the Old Testament promises as filtered through a place. In the very beginning, God made Adam and Eve and he put them in his very special place in the Garden of Eden, which if you pay attention to the details, you realize was God's first temple. The garden was, was where heaven and earth met. It was where God put his image. That's what you do with a temple. You put the image of a God in it. And God put his image, humankind, in the garden. And what were Adam and Eve commanded to do? They were commanded to work and to keep the garden, which are exactly the two Hebrew verbs that the priests are told to do with the temple later in the Old Testament. They're charged to work and to keep it. But above all, the most important function of a temple, which we find in the garden, is very simply, it's where God meets with his people. Again, it's where heaven and earth touch. It's where God and his people are united. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They saw his face. 
He knew their names, and they had this wonderful communion. And then, of course, after the fall, in the garden still, the very first sacrifice was made. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God killed an animal and clothed them with its skins. And it is in those two aspects that we see really the two essential parts of what a temple is. It is a place of access to God and a place of atonement for your sins. Access and atonement. The garden was God's first temple. And then from there, in the, in the storyline of the Old Testament, the next temple, if you will, it wasn't called that, was, was the tabernacle, which was a, a, a tent temple, right? So it, it moved with God's people as they traveled around in the wilderness. It's where God dwelt with his people. When they traveled, the cloud would come down there. This is where we're staying. It would go up and move and say, we're going over there now. And the, the, this, this, the tabernacle was right, if you read Numbers, it's so cool. The tabernacle was right in the center of Israel's camp. So all their tents are facing the tabernacle, not facing out. You'd think, you know, we need to be on defense. There's, you know, Canaanites and Amorites around here. We need to be careful. There's bad guys. We need to face out. No, no, no. All of their hope was facing in towards the tabernacle because that's where God dwelt among them. That's where they were looking And then the next step, once they get into the land, after a long series of failed leaders, and then finally David, and then finally Solomon, they build the very first official temple in 2 Kings. And and here's what it says. Sorry, 2 Chronicles records it as well. I have the Chronicles passage here. It says, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. That should be familiar. We know what that is. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So that should be familiar, right? This is God's place among his people. It's a place of access to God. And then in the next chapter of 2 Chronicles, Solomon prays and says this, have regard, he's praying to God, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. You hear again and again this, this promise, this special place, and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. The temple was a place of access and a place of atonement. It's the heart of the Old Testament hopes, the Old Testament expectations for the temple, this special place where you meet with God and you find forgiveness for your sins. They even, they knew that this temple was meant to, in a way, be a new Eden. They decorated Solomon's temple to look like a garden, to remind them of that hope. We lost that in the garden. And this is our, our way to get it now. But the temple that Solomon made was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylons, Babylonians, uh, came into town. They leveled the temple and they dragged God's people into exile. Obviously a pretty shocking event in their religious history. And when they got back from exile, they had to go and build a new temple. And that second temple is the one that Jesus walks into 
and starts flipping tables and kicking people out. This was the place they looked to for access to God and for their own restoration, and Jesus just creates chaos in there. It's scandalous on a social level. It's scandalous on the level of authority, and it is unbelievably scandalous on a religious level. This is our place. This is where we go. This is where we look for access to God and for atonement for our sins. And yet Jesus violates these conventions and he cleans house. And Matthew mentions specifically two groups that were in there that Jesus addresses, the money changers and then those who sold pigeons. And what's important to realize is is both of these groups had a purpose in the temple. Uh, They they were necessary to the temple worship. So the money changers were like the the financial exchange. Uh, Certainly in, in the first century here, People were coming from all over the Roman Empire with different kinds of currency. Maybe they have Greek currency, maybe they have Roman currency. And here they come to the temple and they need temple currency. There's things like the half shekel tax that you need to pay. And if you're you know, coming from who knows where in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, you probably don't have that. And you, you come and you try to get the right currency. The money changers are helpful. They facilitate that need. And then the pigeon sellers were used there for the sacrificial system. That's a part of the temple worship. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice in the temple, I mean, let's be real. It's just not practical to bring your own animals every time. Maybe you don't have them. Maybe you live far away. You don't own livestock. It's it's complicated, so it's easier to just get there, buy one, and then you can sacrifice it. And yet, Jesus is just kicking out people who you kind of think it was okay for them to be there. Why? What is he doing here? Well, in this part so far, there's, there's very clearly two reasons. Uh, the first is that while these two elements were necessary for temple worship, they had become disruptive to temple worship. So they, they've turned the temple into like a marketplace, basically. It's, it's just chaos. And you can imagine the animals and the, you know, the money changers like haggling for price and all this kind of stuff. Is, it, it looks like a marketplace. They, they would have been in the outer court, which was the court for the Gentiles. If you weren't ethnically Jewish, this was the part available to you to come and to worship. And just imagine you're a Gentile. You, know, you walk in, you kneel down to pray, you know, and there's like a guy over here acting like it's a baseball game, you know, going, get your hot dogs, come get your hot dog. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a little distracting, right? I mean, if we had that happen in a church service, we'd be like, come on, man, we're, we're doing something here, right? You know, but, but that's what the temple is like. What they're doing is necessary, but it doesn't need to be in the temple precincts. Certainly not in the the Gentile, the outer precincts where the Gentiles were allowed. They're disrupting Gentile worship. And so Jesus very clearly drives them out. He wants them out of the area they're in. That's the first reason. The second reason is that what they're doing is not just disruptive. It's also depraved. They're sinning in the temple. And Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages to show us that. So the first one he quotes is from Isaiah 56. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Again, it's from Isaiah 56. And at face value, it seems like him just saying that. He's, he's affirming something I've already said, that the temple is a place of access to God. It's, it's a place of prayer. But Jesus is being a little bit sneaky in quoting that because he's only using half the verse. He actually kind of cuts off and everyone listening 
would have known what the second half was. So this is kind of like, uh, I used to be on staff at a church out in Lubbock, Texas, West Texas for you. And uh, I was like a youth pastor and we took our youth uh, to a summer camp every summer. And one summer, I'll never forget, we were at a camp with a bunch of other uh, groups from around Texas. And in the middle of like the lunchtime, some teenager stands up on his table and yells, the stars at night. There it is. And I'm from Chicago. I, you're going to hate this. I had never heard that song. And I'm like, what just happened? Like everyone in the whole place goes, are big and bright. Right? And now you know why Taylor leads music, not me. Um, that's my real singing voice. Um, but but I, I was like, what is going on? Everyone's yelling the words to deep in the heart of Texas. I never heard that song. All the Texans know it apparently, and it's all part of their kind of collective consciousness, right? And so they know you say the first line and then you say the next line, right? That's what Jesus is doing here in quoting Isaiah 56. He's saying the first half and everyone listening, and certainly the temple officials, the religious leaders, they knew the second half. I'll read a little more. I'll read the verse before in Isaiah 56 as well, because the whole passage, the context shows it, but you'll see here at the end what Isaiah 56 is all about. It says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Where are they when they're disrupting temple worship? They're in the court of the Gentiles. They're doing the opposite of what the temple is heading towards. The temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And they're treating the court of the Gentiles like the seventh inning stretch in a baseball game. It's madness. And not only that, Jesus quotes then Jeremiah 7. Instead of, instead of what it's supposed to be, where it's supposed to be heading, this house of prayer for all peoples, you're doing this. Jeremiah 7, you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jeremiah 7 I won't read it for you, but it's a passage about the destruction of the first temple. It's a prophecy. The prophet Jeremiah is saying, here's what's going on in the temple, and guess what? Yahweh is going to come. He's going to bring the Babylonians in and destroy this place because you're treating it as, as this religious refuge that you can sin inside of. So the Jews are sinning in the temple in Jeremiah 7, and they're thinking, we're in the temple, so it's okay. This is a place of atonement, so we can be forgiven if we do it here. It's, they just treat it like a religious talisman, like a, 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 re, a superstitious refuge, a magic place where you can't get in trouble. And now, Matthew 21, Jesus says, you're doing it again. You're doing it again. The sellers, the financial exchange, in some way, it doesn't explain, in some way they're cheating people, in some way they're treating it as a den of robbers, they're committing robbery in the temple itself. And so Jesus drives them 
out of there. And as is so often the case, we get two different reactions to what Jesus does. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. We got two groups. We got the, the blind, the lame, and children who come to Jesus, who are healed, who praise him, who love him. They think this is great. They're singing his praises. And then on the other side, there's the chief priests and the scribes, right? The temple officials. And let's be honest. If there's anyone who should be absolutely psyched about what Jesus just did, it should be them. It should be them. He's moving the temple toward its actual purpose. They are the stewards of the temple. And he's saying, this is not what the temple is supposed to be. This is what the temple is supposed to be. I mean, right now, so we're at the point in uh, football, the football year where uh, if you're not currently in it, if you've, you've lost, you're usually, you know, crying out like we need to just clean house or we need to fire everybody. For example, if you're one of those people so unfortunate to call yourself a Cowboys fan, you're probably saying, fire everybody. Fire everybody. Last week was embarrassing, right? Hey, I was rooting for you guys last week. It's the first time ever. But some, because sometimes things are so bad that you just have to clean house to get things back on track. And here in the temple, things were so bad and Jesus cleaned house and those who should be fans of this, those who should be excited about this are indignant. And Matthew's just, I just love how he writes it. It's just dripping with irony. Look at verse 15, just these two parts. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they were indignant. Wonderful things, that's not up for debate. It's wonderful, it's great, it's amazing. The Messiah's come, and they're grumpy about it. They hear the joyful praise of children. You know someone's bad if they're complaining about the joyful praise of children, right? And they complain. Yeah, verse 16. They, these religious leaders, said to him, this to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? They're like, Jesus, tell these kids to shut up. This is not okay. You hear them? You hear what they're saying? And Jesus responds by quoting Psalm 8. And Jesus said to them, Yes, yes, I do hear what they're saying. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So as I said, he quotes Psalm 8, which is a, a song, a song of, of praise to God for his wonderful creation, particularly that he's the creator of humankind. So the psalm starts out, what is man that you're mindful of him? It's just, God, you're so great and wonderful and you make us, this is amazing. And then the psalm right here where Jesus quotes, it zeroes in on the smallest little human beings that God makes. These little babies nursing at their mother's breast. And he's saying, the psalmist is saying, do you see how praiseworthy this God is? How amazing is he? Look at the little ones he provides for, and he's getting praise because he's so great making these tiny little infants. Mothers in the room, just a wonderful thought to consider the next time it's 2 a.m. and your baby needs to nurse. God is preparing praise. But Jesus is quoting the psalm as a rebuke. 
to these religious leaders. Certainly, it's, it's a rebuke in part because he's, he's showing how these little kids are getting it and the religious experts, scare quotes, are not. They completely miss the point. But more than that, by quoting Psalm 8, he's actually saying something even crazier. He's, he's upping the ante. So they don't like Jesus being hailed as the son of David, as the Messiah. They're like, hang on a second, that's not cool. We don't like that. And he quotes Psalm 8, which is a song about the God who made those little children. And he's saying, their praise is right. In other words, I'm the creator. I'm the one who made these little children who are praising me for who I am. That's Psalm 8 in action right there. These nursing babies, they praise me because I made them. These children praise me because I made them. He's saying something far more dramatic than I'm the Jewish Messiah. He's saying I am God himself come down in the flesh. And then with that mic drop, he just walks away. Verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And this interaction, this thing we see between the Jewish leaders and Christ is a profound warning to us against the dangers of theological arrogance. The dangers of theological arrogance. Let's, let's be real. They're just looking for an issue with Jesus. They're looking for something to get angry about. He just cleans or cleans the temple their temple, which something they should have been happy about, but they find a reason to be upset at him, and they hit him back with a good old gotcha. They reach for their own specialty. We're the Bible guys. We know everything about the Bible. There's no way this upstart Jewish rabbi knows everything of the Bible like we do. So we're going we're gonna to tell him, hey, you hear what these kids are saying? They're praising you as the son of David. That's wrong. Tell them to stop. They wanted something to get mad about, and so they found a theological basis for it. And very sadly, they missed the fact that God himself was right in front of them. This is the worst kind of theological conservatism. They saw all the stuff going on in the temple, their place that they were supposed to steward, and they did nothing. And then Jesus gets called who he is by some kids and they're the theology police all of a sudden. Theological precision is important. It is often of eternal importance. But there is a terrible danger and a myopic focus on truth that ignores the God of truth, that cares nothing for how we live and worship. All this stuff going on in the temple we're going to ignore it. But hang on a second. Did you hear what they just said? We've got to correct this. They want to be right, but they don't really care about their own responsibilities. I hope you know that at Parkway, we care deeply about theology. We have strong convictions. We're well aware of the dangers of false doctrine, of theological liberalism. But if precision, is our, uh, precision in our doctrine is all we care about. And it doesn't lead us, church, to a joy in our worship. If it doesn't inflame in our hearts a love for the God of truth, if it doesn't move our hands to obedience, it is worthless. There are plenty of people with great, right down the line, perfect doctrine whose lives do not reflect the God they claim to love. And on the last day, they will hear, depart from me, you never knew me. You knew about me, you didn't know me. 
These kids, they got it right. And the educated religious class just stood back with their arms crossed and missed it. Theology is an essential element to discipleship. It is a necessary response to the God who has revealed himself in his word, but the point is to see and to know and to love God. Not to be right all the time. Many of you know I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I think I've used this quote before. In Lord of the Rings, Faramir, he's, he's one of the good guys who fights, and defend, fights for and defends his city, and he says this, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. And that should be our hearts. You should care deeply about truth, deeply about theological precision and conviction, but only because you love the God they describe and defend. That's why it matters. It's not an end in itself. And all this rich, highfalutin doctrine can stay in your head and never make it down to your heart, and you will be as blind as these men were. So Jesus rebukes them, and then we move on to the next day, verses 18 and 19. It says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now I want us to imagine something. Imagine that we didn't have the whole New Testament. That we didn't have any of the you know, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We didn't have anything about Jesus' life. But one day, some archaeologists maybe dressed like Indiana Jones, that's how I imagine them, uh, finds a scrap of a papyrus or something uh, with Matthew 21, verse 19 on it. And that's all we know about Jesus. Matthew 21, verse 19, where Jesus curses a tree. What conclusion would the archaeological community draw? What, what would history assume about Jesus of Nazareth? Probably some kind of clinical diagnosis. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't need to tell you. I hope I don't need to tell you. If, if I went home today and started yelling at our cherry tomato plants for not giving me my lunch, my wife, because she loves me, would book a psychiatric evaluation. There's something wrong there, right? It's, it's not normal. This is weird. But the good news is, this is not the only scrap of information we have about Jesus, and as we'll see, it is not just a weird, pointless thing he's doing. The context reveals the whole point. He's not crazy. He is showing us something profound. But first, before we get to why he does this, we need to understand what he does. And Matthew, in describing this, if you pay attention, gives what seems like a lot of extraneous details. He says a lot of things that, I mean, don't really seem relevant. So it says in, this, in the next morning, after the temple cleansing, so the next day, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. That's going to be important. He's headed back to Jerusalem, and he's hungry. Now, let's remember, in chapter 14, Jesus fed 5,000 people. In chapter 15, Jesus said fed 4,000 people. I mean, if, if, if this dude's hungry, he could have had a steaming plate of Raisin Cane's chicken fingers in the snap of his fingers. And he's the son of God, so he would do that because he knows where the best chicken is found. That's what I would do, at least. 
Cain's didn't even exist yet, but he could have done it. That's pretty cool. But he decides, instead of, you know, summoning, raising Cain's right in front of him, he decides to go to a fig tree, and it says he found nothing but only leaves. And now leaves should have been an indication of fruit as well. A fig tree in leaf should have fruit, but this one doesn't. It looks right, but it does not deliver on what it pretends to. So he curses it, and this is a, this is a doozy of a curse. Uh, a more literal translation would be, no longer may there be fruit from you unto eternity. Wow! Jesus does not like this plant. I mean, that is a heck of a curse. And in response, the fig tree withers. It dies. And we get the disciples' reaction. Verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, uh, that passage might sound a little bit familiar. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 17, where he was talking about if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can uh, you know, move mountains. And at face value, it sounds like Jesus is just doing a pointless miracle to repeat himself. It's kind of, it's kind of odd. Like he just yelled at a tree to make a point that he's already made, uh, some people in more word of faith or prosperity circles will say this is instructing us something that we should do. We should do pointless miracles like ruin crops and rearrange mountains. Uh, but to understand this, we need to remember, as always, two crucial elements of Bible study. Two things, anytime you're reading the Bible, anytime you're studying or hearing a sermon, two things that matter that are just of great importance when you're studying the scriptures. And the first is that the details matter. Nothing in the Bible is extraneous. Nothing's fluff. Nothing's unnecessary. I, I, I try at least to spend a lot of time pointing out the details to you because I, I want you to see they, they really matter. There's something they're doing here together. Nothing's on accident. So first, the details matter. But secondly, context is everything. Context is everything. In uh, 1938, uh, the book The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells was, was given a, a dramatic reading on public radio. It was kind of like the old school version of an audio book. They, they hired voice actors and they had sound effects and they, they, they read out the book The War of the Worlds. And if, if you're not familiar with the book, it's a, a story about aliens invading Earth and it's the war between humans and aliens, right? And while this work of fiction was being read on public radio... Some people tuned in and did not realize they had stumbled into the middle of a science fiction book. And some people literally thought that aliens were invading Earth, that they were hearing the news reporting an alien invasion. What happened? They were missing the context. I'm sure it said at the beginning something like, and now this dramatic reading of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. No, they didn't know that. They're just like, oh my goodness, what's happening? They were missing the context. And sometimes we do the same thing with the Bible, and context is absolutely everything. And context and detail here show us Jesus is not killing a plant for no good reason. So first, let's consider the canonical context, the whole Bible. 
how it might inform what's going on here. Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets regularly compared Israel to, a, they would use a botanical metaphor, so a plant. They would compare Israel to various kinds of plants. So Isaiah 5, we'll get to this in two weeks, uh, describes Israel as a vineyard that God tends. Jeremiah 24, God compares the Jewish exiles to good and bad figs. Does that sound familiar? It should. And then very clearly, Jeremiah 8, verse 13, God is talking about Israel, talking about the fruit that he demands from them, and it says this, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. What's going on there? Well, very clearly, in Isaiah, or Jeremiah rather, God's people are being rebuked for the fact that they've been given the covenants, they've been given all the promises, they've been given all these blessings, they've been given the, the law, the word of God, and it has borne no fruit. They have been faithless and disobedient. There is no fruit. That's the canonical context. Let's look also at the immediate context. What did Jesus just do before he cursed the fig tree? He went up on the temple mount and he cleansed the temple. And what is he doing right now? He's walking back to Jerusalem. He's facing the city. And he says, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. What's this mountain? What mountain is he talking about? The Temple Mount. Mount Zion. He put all this together, and the point is clear. Jesus is announcing the fruitlessness. It's got leaves, but no fruit. The fruitlessness, and therefore the fall of the physical temple in Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD. There will be more promises of it to come. But Jesus is saying, this localized place, this mountain we're all looking at will no longer be where you find access to God and atonement for your sins. No, those things now will be found through faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's the avenue to access an atonement. The Old Testament promises were filtered through a place and a person, and in Christ, we find those two streams merge. And we actually, I skipped it. We already saw this in Matthew 21. Look back at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Jesus just cleansed the temple, and what is the very first thing he does? He sits down, and the people come to him. They're in the temple, but they're not coming for the temple. They're coming for him. The temple is where heaven and earth meet. It is the place of access to God and atonement for your sins, and Jesus sits down in the temple and they come to him and he makes them whole. This is where the trajectory that we traced of the temple, this is where it leads. It started in the garden and then the tabernacle and then the first and the second temples. That's where they found access to God, atonement for their sins, but not anymore. The next step in the temple's story is Jesus. Look at John chapter 4. I love John because John sometimes will just come out right out and say what the other 
uh, evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are showing. He'll just come out and say it. So John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman. And there was this, it's important for the context there, there was this long-term beef between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the Jews uh, believed that on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that's, that's where you go to worship. And the Samaritans believed it was Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritan woman, talking to Jesus, a Jew, and points at Mount Gerizim and says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, meaning you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. You could actually translate that, believe in me. Woman, believe in me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, the most important question of the temple cleansing is not why does Jesus upend what's going on in the temple? That's an important question. It's not the most important question. The most important question is why can he? Why can he? Answer, because there's a new temple. Because the house of prayer for all nations has come in the person of Christ. Because this Jesus will go to the cross to make atonement for sin, to restore all those who will put their faith in him. He will make them right and he will send his spirit, access to God for God's people everywhere. He is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. You won't need this mountain anymore if you have faith in him. In fact, if you're in Christ, the trajectory continues and it gets even better. If you're in Christ, you're part of the new temple. Ephesians chapter 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That mind-blowing reality in particular is what we need to understand from this passage. There are so many false ideas out there about where access to God is found and what salvation is. For example, in prosperity theology, the answer is basically salvation is, you know, a bunch of cool stuff. Big houses, full bank account, maybe some, you know, magic mountain moving powers if you like Matthew 21. And Roman Catholic theology, access to God is mediated through priests. God's up there. You need someone in between, some, a bunch of priests, because he doesn't want to you know, deal with icky, normal Christians like you. A New Age theology is the opposite. Everyone everywhere can get in touch with God however you want. There's really no rules. Whatever floats your boat, that'll do. You define how you want to get access to God and experience nirvana or whatever, you define what salvation is, but in Christ, all of those fall by the wayside. In Christ, in the new temple, there is both a particularizing and a universalizing aspect to the new temple. It's particular and that it's only in Christ. You don't get to make it up for yourself. It is only in Christ. 
that through faith in him, you will have access to the true God. And it's universal in that wherever you are, whoever you are, if you will put your faith in this Jesus, you will find atonement for your sins. You will have access to the king of the cosmos. And he gives gifts infinitely better than pointless miracles or money. He offers a salvation that is complete and whole and joyous from the inside out, changing you to make him like his son. So in Christ, as Hebrew says, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and receive mercy. Access to God and atonement for our sins. All through Jesus. So brothers and sisters, don't be led astray by false paths. Don't be looking some other place. Jesus is your hope for salvation and the only way to God, and he is enough and he is more than enough. Let's pray. Christ, we're thankful for the great hope that we have through your gospel. That we don't need to go to some particular place, but you have promised and you have staked your claim on this entire world so that we can come and find forgiveness simply through faith and we can be united to you simply through faith. God, there's nothing we can offer, no place that would be special enough for the ultimate realization of these glorious truths. And we pray we would cast aside any false paths we might be looking to and fix our eyes on the one path that leads all the way to you and all the way to our wholeness, and that path is Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.